0: Section 2 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introduction Part 1 When we say that ideas rule the world or exercise a decisive power in history, we are generally thinking of those ideas which express human aims and depend for their realization on the human will, such as liberty, toleration, equality of opportunity, socialism. Some of these have been partly realized and there is no reason why any of them should not be fully realized in a society or in the world if it were the united purpose of a society or of the world to realize it. They are approved or condemned because they are held to be good or bad, not because they are true or false. But there is another order of ideas that play a great part in determining and directing the course of man's conduct but do not depend on his will. Ideas which bear upon the mystery of life, such as fate, providence, or personal immortality. Such ideas may operate in important ways on the forms of social action, but they involve a question of fact, and they are accepted or rejected not because they are believed to be useful or injurious, but because they are believed to be true or false. The idea of the progress of humanity is an idea of this kind, and it is important to be quite clear on the point. We now take it so much for granted, we are so conscious of constantly progressing in knowledge, arts, organizing capacity, utilities of all sorts, that it is easy to look upon progress as an aim, like liberty or a world federation, which it only depends on our own efforts and good will to achieve. But though all increases of power and knowledge depend on human effort, the idea of the progress of humanity, from which all these particular progresses derive their value, raises a definite question of fact which man's wishes or labors cannot affect any more than his wishes or labors can prolong life beyond the grave. This idea means that civilization has moved, is moving, and will move in a desirable direction. But in order to judge that we are moving in a desirable direction, we should have to know precisely what the destination is. To the minds of most people, the desirable outcome of human development would be a condition of society in which all the inhabitants of the planet would enjoy a perfectly happy existence. But it is impossible to be sure that civilization is moving in the right direction to realize this aim. Certain features of our progress may be urged as presumptions in its favor, but there are always offsets, and it has always been easy to make out a case that, from the point of view of increasing happiness, the tendencies of our progressive civilization are far from desirable. In short, it cannot be proved that the unknown destination towards which man is advancing is desirable. The movement may be progress, or it may be in an undesirable direction, and therefore not progress. This is a question of fact, and one which is at present as insoluble as the question of personal immortality. It is a problem which bears on the mystery of life. Moreover, even if it is admitted to be probable that the course of civilization has so far been in a desirable direction, and such as would lead to general felicity if the direction were followed far enough, it cannot be proved that ultimate attainment depends entirely on the human will. For the advance might at some point be arrested by an insuperable wall. Take the particular case of knowledge, as to which it is generally taken for granted that the continuity of progress in the future depends altogether on the continuity of human effort, assuming that human brains do not degenerate. This assumption is based on a strictly limited experience. Science has been advancing without interruption during the last three or four hundred years. Every new discovery has led to new problems and new methods of solution and opened up new fields for exploration. Hitherto men of science have not been compelled to halt. They have always found means to advance further. But what assurance have we that they will not one day come up against impassable barriers? The experience of 400 years, in which the surface of nature has been successfully tapped, can hardly be said to warrant conclusions as to the prospect of operations extending over 400 or 4,000 centuries. Take biology or astronomy. How can we be sure that someday progress may not come to a dead pause, not because knowledge is exhausted, but because our resources for investigation are exhausted? Because, for instance, scientific instruments have reached the limit of perfection beyond which it is demonstrably impossible to improve them? Or because, in the case of astronomy, we come into the presence of forces of which, unlike gravitation, we have no terrestrial experience, It is an assumption which cannot be verified that we shall not soon reach a point in our knowledge of nature beyond which the human intellect is unqualified to pass. But it is just this assumption which is the light and inspiration of man's scientific research. For if the assumption is not true, it means that he can never come within sight of the goal which is, in the case of physical science, if not a complete knowledge of the cosmos and the processes of nature, at least an immeasurably larger and deeper knowledge than we at present possess. Thus, continuous progress in man's knowledge of his environment, which is one of the chief conditions of general progress, is a hypothesis which may or may not be true, and, if it is true, there remains the further hypothesis of man's moral and social perfectibility, which rests on much less impressive evidence. There is nothing to show that he may not reach, in his psychical and social development, a stage at which the conditions of his life will be still far from satisfactory, and beyond which he will find it impossible to progress. This is a question of fact, which no willing on man's part can alter. It is a question bearing on the mystery of life. Enough has been said to show that the progress of humanity belongs to the same order of ideas as providence or personal immortality. It is true or it is false, and like them it cannot be proved either true or false. Belief in it is an act of faith. The idea of human progress, then, is a theory which involves a synthesis of the past and a prophecy of the future. It is based on an interpretation of history which regards men as slowly advancing but attemptem in a definite and desirable direction and infers that this progress will continue indefinitely and it implies that as the issue of the earth's great business a condition of general happiness will ultimately be enjoyed which will justify the whole process of civilization for otherwise the direction would not be desirable there is also a further implication the process must be the necessary outcome of the psychical and social nature of man. It must not be at the mercy of any external will, otherwise there would be no guarantee of its continuance and its issue, and the idea of progress would lapse into the idea of providence. As time is the very condition of the possibility of progress, it is obvious that the idea would be valueless if there were any cogent reasons for supposing that the time at the disposal of humanity is likely to reach a limit in the near future. If there were good cause for believing that the earth would be uninhabitable in A.D. 2000 or 2100, the doctrine of progress would lose its meaning and would automatically disappear. It would be a delicate question to decide what is the minimum period of time which must be assured to man for his future development in order that progress should possess value and appeal to the emotions. The recorded history of civilization covers six thousand years or so, and if we take this as a measure of our conceptions of time distances, we might assume that if we were sure of a period ten times as long ahead of us, the idea of progress would not lose its power of appeal. Sixty thousand years of historical time, when we survey the changes which have come to pass in six thousand, opens to the imagination a range vast enough to seem almost endless. This psychological question, however, need not be decided, for science assures us that the stability of the present conditions of the solar system is certified for many myriads of years to come. Whatever gradual modifications of climate there may be, the planet will not cease to support life for a period which transcends and flouts all efforts of imagination. In short, the possibility of progress is guaranteed by the high probability, based on astrophysical science, of an immense time to progress in. It may surprise many to be told that the notion of progress, which now seems so easy to apprehend, is of comparatively recent origin. It has indeed been claimed that various thinkers, both ancient, for instance, Seneca, and medieval, for instance, Friar Bacon, had long ago conceived it. But sporadic observations, such as man's gradual rise from primitive and savage conditions to a certain level of civilization by a series of inventions, or the possibility of some future additions to his knowledge of nature, which were inevitable at a certain stage of human reflection, do not amount to an anticipation of the idea. The value of such observations was determined, and must be estimated, By the whole context of ideas in which they occurred it is from its bearings on the future that progress derives its value its interest and its power you may conceive civilization as having gradually advanced in the past but you have not got the idea of progress until you go on to conceive that it is destined to advance indefinitely in the future ideas have their intellectual climates and i propose to show briefly in this introduction that the intellectual climates of classical antiquity and the ensuing ages were not propitious to the birth of the doctrine of progress. It is not till the sixteenth century that the obstacles to its appearance definitely begin to be transcended and a favorable atmosphere to be gradually prepared. 1. It may, in particular, seem surprising that the Greeks, who were so fertile in their speculations on human life, did not hit upon an idea which seems so simple and obvious to us as the idea of progress but if we try to realize their experience and the general character of their thought we shall cease to wonder their recorded history did not go back far and so far as it did go there had been no impressive series of new discoveries suggesting either an indefinite increase of knowledge or a growing mastery of the forces of nature in the period in which their most brilliant minds were busied with the problems of the universe men might improve the building of ships or invent new geometrical demonstrations But their science did little or nothing to transform the conditions of life or to open any vista into the future they were in the presence of no facts strong enough to counteract that profound veneration of antiquity which seems natural to mankind and the athenians of the age of pericles or of plato though they were thoroughly obviously modern compared with the homeric greeks were never self-consciously modern as we are one the indications that human civilization was a gradual growth and that man had painfully worked his way forward from a low and savage state, could not indeed escape the sharp vision of the Greeks. For instance, Aeschylus represents men as originally living at hazard in sunless caves and raised from that condition by Prometheus, who taught them the arts of life. In Euripides we find a similar recognition of the ascent of mankind to a civilized state from primitive barbarism, some god or other playing the part of Prometheus. In such passages as these we have it may be said the idea that man has progressed and it may fairly be suggested that belief in a natural progress lay for aeschylus as well as for euripides behind the poetical fiction of supernatural intervention but these recognitions of a progress were not incompatible with the widely spread belief in an initial degeneration of the human race nor did it usually appear as a rival doctrine the old legend of a golden age of simplicity from which man had fallen away was generally accepted as truth and leading thinkers combined it with the doctrine of a gradual sequence of social and material improvements during the subsequent period of decline. Footnote. In the masterly survey of early Greek history which Thucydides prefixed to his work, he traces the social progress of the Greeks in historical times and finds the key to it in the increase of wealth. End of footnote: We find the two views thus combined, for instance, in Plato's Laws and in the earliest reasoned history of civilization, written by Dicaearchus, a pupil of Aristotle. Footnote. Aristotle's own view is not very clear. He thinks that all arts, sciences, and institutions have been repeatedly, or rather an infinite number of times, aperakis, discovered in the past and again lost. An infinite number of times seems to imply the doctrine of cycles. End of footnote. But the simple life of the first age, in which men were not worn with toil and war and disease were unknown, was regarded as the ideal state to which man would be only too fortunate if he could return. He had, indeed, at a remote time in the past, succeeded in ameliorating some of the conditions of his lot, but such ancient discoveries as fire or ploughing or navigation or law-giving did not suggest the guess that new inventions might lead ultimately to conditions in which life would be more complex but as happy as the simple life of the primitive world. But if some relative progress might be admitted, the general view of Greek philosophers was that they were living in a period of inevitable degeneration and decay. Inevitable because it was prescribed by the nature of the universe. We have only an imperfect knowledge of the influential speculations of Heraclitus, Pythagoras, and Empedocles, but we may take Plato's tentative philosophy of history to illustrate the trend and the prejudices of Greek thought on this subject. The world was created and set going by the Deity, and as his work it was perfect but it was not immortal and had in it the seeds of decay. The period of its duration is 72,000 solar years. During the first half of this period the original uniformity and order, which were impressed upon it by the creator, are maintained under his guidance, but then it reaches a point from which it begins, as it were, to roll back. The deity has loosened his grip of the machine, the order is disturbed, and the second 36,000 years are a period of gradual decay and degeneration. At the end of this time, the world left to itself would dissolve into chaos, but the deity again seizes the helm and restores the original conditions, and the whole process begins anew. The first half of such a world cycle corresponds to the golden age of legend in which men lived happily and simply. We have now unfortunately reached some point in the period of decadence. Plato applies the theory of degradation in his study of political communities. He conceives his own utopian aristocracy as having existed somewhere towards the beginning of the period of the world's relapse when things were not so bad and exhibits its gradual deterioration through the successive stages of timocracy oligarchy democracy and despotism similarly he places the ideal society which he describes in the critias nine thousand years before solon the state which he plans in the laws is indeed imagined as a practicable project in his own day but then it is only a second best. The ideal state of which Aristotle sketched an outline is not set either in time or in place. End of footnote. He explains this deterioration as primarily caused by a degeneration of the race due to laxity and errors in the state regulation of marriages and the consequent birth of biologically inferior individuals. The theories of Plato are only the most illustrious example of the tendency characteristic of Greek philosophical thinkers to idealize the immutable as possessing a higher value than that which varies. This affected all their social speculations. They believed in the ideal of an absolute order in society from which, when it is once established, any deviation must be for the worse. Aristotle, considering the subject from a practical point of view, laid down that changes in an established social order are undesirable and should be as few and slight as possible. This prejudice against change excluded the apprehension of civilization as a progressive movement. It did not occur to Plato or anyone else that a perfect order might be attainable by a long series of changes and adaptations. Such an order, being an embodiment of reason, could be created only by a deliberate and immediate act of a planning mind. It might be devised by the wisdom of a philosopher or revealed by the deity. Hence, the salvation of a community must lie in preserving intact, so far as possible, the institutions imposed by the enlightened lawgiver, since change meant corruption and disaster. These a priori principles account for the admiration of the Spartan state entertained by many Greek philosophers, because it was supposed to have preserved unchanged for an unusually long period a system established by an inspired legislator. 2. Thus, time was regarded as the enemy of humanity. Horace's verse, Damnosa Quid Non Imminuit Dies, Time Depreciates the Value of the World, expresses the pessimistic axiom accepted in most systems of ancient thought. The theory of world cycles was so widely current that it may almost be described as the orthodox theory of cosmic time among the Greeks, and it passed from them to the Romans. According to some of the Pythagoreans, each cycle repeated to the minutest particular the course and events of the preceding. If the universe dissolves into the original chaos, there appeared to them to be no reason why the second chaos should produce a world differing in the least respect from its predecessor. The nth cycle would be indeed numerically distinct from the first, but otherwise would be identical with it, and no man could possibly discover the number of the cycle in which he was living. As no end seems to have been assigned to the whole process, the course of the world's history would contain an endless number of Trojan Wars, for instance, an endless number of Plato's would write an endless number of republics. Virgil uses this idea in his fourth eclogue, where he meditates a return of the golden age. Alter eret tomtifis, et altera que uehet argo delectos heroas, erunt etiam altera bella, atque iterum ad troiam magnus mitetur Achilles. The periodic theory might be held in forms in which this uncanny doctrine of absolute identity was avoided, but at the best, it meant an endless monotonous iteration, which was singularly unlikely to stimulate speculative interest in the future. It must be remembered that no thinker had any means of knowing how near to the end of his cycle the present hour might be. The most influential school of the later Greek age, the Stoics, adopted the theory of cycles, and the natural psychological effect of the theory is vividly reflected in Marcus Aurelius, who frequently dwells on it in his meditations. The rational soul, he says, quote, wanders round the whole world and through the encompassing void, and gazes into infinite time, and considers the periodic destructions and rebirths of the universe, and reflects that our posterity will see nothing new, and that our ancestors saw nothing greater than we have seen. A man of forty years, possessing the most moderate intelligence, may be said to have seen all that is past and all that is to come. So uniform is the world. Close quote. Footnote. The cyclical theory was curiously revived in the 19th century by Nietzsche, and it is interesting to note his avowal that it took him a long time to overcome the feeling of pessimism which the doctrine inspired. And footnote. 3. And yet one Stoic philosopher saw clearly and declared emphatically that increases in knowledge must be expected in the future. There are many peoples today, Seneca wrote, quote, who are ignorant of the cause of eclipses of the moon and it has only recently been demonstrated among ourselves. The day will come when time and human diligence will clear up problems which are now obscure. We divide the few years of our lives unequally between study and vice, and it will therefore be the work of many generations to explain such phenomena as comets. One day our posterity will marvel at our ignorance of causes so clear to them. How many new animals have we first come to know in the present age? In time to come, men will know much that is unknown to us many discoveries are reserved for future ages when our memory will have faded from men's minds we imagine ourselves initiated in the secrets of nature we are standing on the threshold of her temple Close quote. but these predictions are far from showing that seneca had the least inkling of a doctrine of the progress of humanity such a doctrine is sharply excluded by the principles of his philosophy and his profoundly pessimistic view of human affairs immediately after the passage which i have quoted he goes on to enlarge on the progress of vice, quote, "Are you surprised to be told that human knowledge has not yet completed its whole task, why human wickedness has not yet fully developed?" Close quote. Yet at least it may be said Seneca believed in a progress of knowledge and recognized its value. Yes, but the value which he attributed to it did not lie in any advantages which it would bring to the general community of mankind. He did not expect from it any improvement of the world. The value of natural science from his point of view was this that it opened to the philosopher a divine region in which wandering among the stars he could laugh at the earth and all its riches and his mind delivered as it were from prison could return to its original home in other words its value lay not in its results but simply in the intellectual activity and therefore it concerned not mankind at large but a few chosen individuals who doomed to live in a miserable world Could thus deliver their souls from slavery. For Seneca's belief in the theory of degeneration and the hopeless corruption of the race is uncompromising. Human life on the earth is periodically destroyed, alternately by fire and flood, and each period begins with a golden age in which men live in rude simplicity, innocent because they are ignorant, not because they are wise. When they degenerate from this state, arts and inventions promote deterioration by ministering to luxury and vice interesting then as seneca's observations on the prospect of some future scientific discoveries are and they are unique in ancient literature they were far from adumbrating a doctrine of the progress of man footnote they are general and definite this distinguishes them for instance from plato's incidental hint in the republic as to the prospect of the future development of solid geometry and a footnote for him as for plato and the older philosophers time is the enemy of man 4. There was, however, a school of philosophical speculation which might have led to the foundation of a theory of progress if the historical outlook of the Greeks had been larger and if their temper had been different. The atomic theory of Democritus seems to us now in many ways the most wonderful achievement of Greek thought, but it had a small range of influence in Greece and would have had less if it had not convinced the brilliant mind of Epicurus. The Epicureans developed it, And it may be that the views which they put forward as to the history of the human race are mainly their own superstructure. These philosophers rejected entirely the doctrine of a golden age and a subsequent degeneration, which was manifestly incompatible with their theory that the world was mechanically formed from atoms without the intervention of a deity. For them, the earliest condition of men resembled that of the beasts, and from this primitive and miserable condition they laboriously reached the existing state of civilization, not by external guidance or as a consequence of some initial design, but simply by the exercise of human intelligence throughout a long period. Footnote. Lucretius, five fourteen forty eight sequentes, where the word progress is pronounced. Usus et impigres simil experientia mentis polatim docuit peditentem progradientis sec unum quicquid palatim protrahit aetas in medium ratioque in luminis erigit oras. NAMQUE ALID EX ALIO CLARICERE ET ORDINE debit ARTIBUS AD SUMMUM DONEC UINERE CACUMEN. footnote. The gradual amelioration of their existence was marked by the discovery of fire and the use of metals, the invention of language, the invention of weaving, the growth of arts and industries, navigation, the development of family life, the establishment of social order by means of kings, magistrates, laws, the foundation of cities. The last great step in the amelioration of life, according to Lucretius, was the illuminating philosophy of Epicurus, who dispelled the fear of invisible powers and guided man from intellectual darkness to light. But Lucretius and the school to which he belonged did not look forward to a steady and continuous process of further amelioration in the future. They believed that a time would come when the universe would fall into ruins, but the intervening period did not interest them. Like many other philosophers, they thought that their own philosophy was the final word on the universe, and they did not contemplate the possibility that important advances in knowledge might be achieved by subsequent generations. And in any case, their scope was entirely individualistic. All their speculations were subsidiary to the aim of rendering the life of the individual as tolerable as possible here and now. Their philosophy, like Stoicism, was a philosophy of resignation. It was thoroughly pessimistic and therefore incompatible with the idea of progress. Lucretius himself allows an underlying feeling of skepticism as to the value of civilization occasionally to escape. Footnote. His eadem sunt omnia semper is the constant refrain of Marcus Aurelius. And a footnote. Indeed, it might be said that in the mentality of the ancient Greeks, there was a strain which would have rendered them indisposed to take such an idea seriously if it had been propounded. No period of their history could be described as an age of optimism. They were never, by their achievements in art or literature, in mathematics or philosophy, exalted into self-complacency or lured into setting high hopes on human capacity. Man has resourcefulness to meet everything. Aparos ep uden erketai. They did not go further than that. This instinctive pessimism of the Greeks had a religious tinge which perhaps even the Epicureans found it hard entirely to expunge. They always felt that they were in the presence of unknown, incalculable powers, and that subtle dangers lurked in human achievements and gains. Horace has taken this feeling as the motif of a criticism on man's inventive powers. A Voyage of Virgil suggests the reflection that his friend's life would not be exposed to hazards on the high seas if the art of navigation had never been discovered, if man had submissively respected the limits imposed by nature. But man is audacious ne quiquam deus absidet prudens oceano dissociabili terras. In vain a wise god severed lands by the dissociating sea. Daedalus violated the air as Hercules invaded hell. The discovery of fire put us in possession of a forbidden secret. Is this unnatural conquest of nature safe or wise? Nil mortabilis ardui est. Man finds no feet too hard or high, heaven is not safe from man's desire our rash designs move jove to ire he dares not lay his thunder by the thought of this ode roughly expresses what would have been the instinctive sense of thoughtful greeks if the idea of progress had been presented to them it would have struck them as audacious the theory of men unduly elated and perilously at ease in the presence of unknown incalculable powers this feeling or attitude was connected with the idea of moira if we were to name any single idea as generally controlling or pervading greek thought from homer to the stoics it would perhaps be moira for which we have no equivalent footnote the stoics identified moira with Pronoia in accordance with their theory that the universe is permeated by thought end of footnote the common rendering fate is misleading moira meant a fixed order in the universe but as a fact to which men must bow It had enough in common with fatality to demand a philosophy of resignation and to hinder the creation of an optimistic atmosphere of hope. It was this order which kept things in their places, assigned to each its proper sphere and function, and drew a definite line, for instance, between men and gods. Human progress towards perfection, towards an ideal of omniscience or an ideal of happiness, would have been a breaking down of the bars which divide the human from the divine. Human nature does not alter, it is fixed by Moira five we can see now how it was that speculative greek minds never hit on the idea of progress in the first place their limited historical experience did not easily suggest such a synthesis and in the second place the axioms of their thought their suspiciousness of change their theories of moira of degeneration and cycles suggested a view of the world which was the very antithesis of progressive development epicurean philosophers made indeed what might have been an important step in the direction of the doctrine of progress by discarding the theory of degeneration and recognizing that civilization had been created by a series of successive improvements achieved by the effort of man alone but here they stopped short for they had their eyes fixed on the lot of the individual here and now and their study of the history of humanity was strictly subordinate to this personal interest The value of their recognition of human progress in the past is conditioned by the general tenor and purpose of their theory of life. It was simply one item in their demonstration that man owed nothing to supernatural intervention and had nothing to fear from supernatural powers. It is, however, no accident that the school of thought which struck on a path that might have led to the idea of progress was the most uncompromising enemy of superstition that Greece produced. It might be thought that the establishment of roman rule and order in a large part of the known world and the civilizing of barbarian peoples could not fail to have opened to the imagination of some of those who reflected on it in the days of virgil or of seneca a vista into the future but there was no change in the conditions of life likely to suggest a brighter view of human existence with the loss of freedom pessimism increased and the greek philosophies of resignation were needed more than ever those whom they could not satisfy Turned their thoughts to new mystical philosophies and religions, which were little interested in the earthly destinies of human society. End of section two.